that it would happen, that evil would cease to exist. His, his, his continuing thought was that if the God of the Bible wasn't the God of the Bible, and, and since evil truly exists, that the God of the Bible must not be all-powerful if he's willing to stop evil, but evil continues. Or the God of the Bible may be all-powerful, but unwilling to cease to stop evil, and that makes him evil. And so in either case, you end up with this God in this view that is not really worthy to be worshipped. You end up with a God who is either impotent with no power or who, with a God who doesn't care about his creation. And in recent years, that, that has been used to not just talk about evil or, or, or the topic has been, has, has been pulled back a little bit and, it, and people in our day don't think of it as evil so much but as suffering. And so the same idea would apply. If suffering exists, the God of the Bible can't exist. The Bible teaches that God's all-powerful. If God's all-powerful but doesn't want to stop suffering, he must be evil. But if God's not all-powerful but would want to stop suffering, he must not be all-powerful. He must not have the power to do it. He must, he must not be able to do it. And so in either case, in, in all cases, as, as we look at this, and as, as, this, as this thought becomes more and more prevalent in our world, it, it pulls us back to this place and it demands us to think that if this is true, then God's not really worthy to be worshipped. But I would, I, I, would, I would venture, I guess, that you're not here this morning because you believe that or that you think that way. I would venture a guess that you're here this morning because you understand and know that God truly is worthy of our worship. And actually, as, as we, we start into this chapter 11 of John, we're going to see and we're going to be confronted with the very fact that even in the midst of suffering, God truly is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy of worship. John Stott says that this, that this single fact, that this single challenge against the Christian faith is the greatest thing that we face in defending our faith. It's the greatest thing that, that challenges us as we stand up and defend our faith in front of a culture that would want to rebel against God. And he's a pretty smart guy, so I probably would agree with him that this is the, one of the single most hardest things to defend against when, when someone questions the Christian faith. I would probably agree with that. But for believers for people who are in Jesus Christ, for people who know Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, the one sent of God to take away the sins of the world, for people who are believers, I believe that you're going to see today that in the suffering, it may be something hard to defend against to a world that sometimes is rebellious and hateful towards God, but in suffering, it is the place where we will see God's glory the greatest. And we will understand His worth and his value, and, and, and the place where he stands in honor and glory. Well, if you've got your Bible, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be. You're welcome to turn there now. Let me set the passage up for you before we get to it so that, so that you'll kind of have an idea of what the context is all about. Jesus has been in, this ministry, in the ministry now, for, uh, in his public ministry now, for about two, maybe two and a half years. Things are... Things are going in, in what most people would consider to be a, a pretty trying and um, a, a 
it's just difficult for him. He's now been um, nearly stoned twice. He's not in Jerusalem anymore because the Jews are so hateful towards him that, that as he taught and as he spoke about being God, they, they tried to kill him. So he leaves Jerusalem and um, is off where John the Baptist was first ministering and baptizing people, and which is uh, probably 30 or 40 miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, so people are still coming and hearing him. They're still coming and, and, and believing in him, but he is facing great opposition. And, and as the chapter 10 ends, it tells us that even in the face of that, he's still ministering, he's still doing his work, he's still, he's still healing people, still, still at his work in the face of great opposition. And then we pick up the story where in the midst of this, Jesus is, a messenger comes to Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of, Mar- the village of Mary and her sister Mar- Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. Let me just start over. i tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to pray because I need to focus. You need to focus. And uh, we're, we're going to start there. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much that uh, even in the midst of a rough world and a place where we deal with trial and tribulation every day that your glory can be seen. I pray, Father, that as we go through this passage that you'll help me to, um, to verbalize those things that you've put into my heart. I pray that you'll open the hearts of the people sitting in this room, that you'll touch their lives and, and that you will speak clearly to us. I pray, Father, that um, in the midst of this, that we will recognize your glory and that we will respond in worship. Pray that you just help us to be still now and know that you're God and that we'll hear your word. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me try again. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now if you stop right there, I just want to make a point real quick. It's interesting to me that Mary and Martha knew where to go for help. They knew that Jesus... um, would offer help. They, they knew Jesus. They believed in Him. They trusted in Him. They had seen His power. Um, it's, it's obvious that as, as the passage opens that Jesus had a special connection with this family. It's obvious that, that they knew and understood something about Him and as we see here that, that, they, that He knew of them. This, this man that you love, this man that you know and love, He is sick. He's ill. And they knew that Jesus was the one that, that, that they needed to turn to for help. They knew that Jesus was the one that could do something about it. Now think about this with me. By this time, Jesus, he'd been ministering. He'd been in the region for two years. He hadn't always been in the vicinity of Bethany. He hadn't always been right there in that village. But the things that he was doing, the power that he was demonstrating, the works that he was doing, the things that he was teaching, everyone was hearing about them. No one lived in that area at this time and didn't know about Jesus. They didn't know about the things that were being said about him. It was obvious that, that he was that place to turn to. And it was this power, it was the things that he was doing that, that began to point to him as the Messiah and began to demonstrate that he was more than just a mere man. 
John the Baptist, if you think about John the Baptist, I mean, he had, he had stood up in front of all of his followers. Everyone who had listened to him, he stood up one day and he sees Jesus and he says, there he is, the man who came to take away the sins of the world, or the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. He was, he was pointing to Christ as the Messiah at every turn. He comes to a place in his ministry and he's, he, he's arrested because of his stance and because of his call for, for the king to repent. And, and, and he's arrested and he's going to be killed. And, and in the midst of this, he begins to get confused and he gets, begins, to, begins to wonder and begins to deal with doubt. And even though he had started with such a strong and bold witness, even though he had this, this strong and powerful idea about who Jesus was, he began to deal with doubt. And he sends some of his followers, some of his people that had stayed with him for a time, he sends them to talk to Jesus and he says to them, he says, go and find out, is he the one? Is he the one that we've been expecting? And so his followers do it. It's interesting. We see it over and over and over through Scripture that Jesus is that place to turn to for answers. Jesus is that place that we go to to seek, to seek, uh, to, to seek real action. Jesus is that place where we can turn to and trust that a work will be done. Over and over it's repeated. And so John sends his people, his people go and they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, are you the one? John wants to know, are you the one that we've been expecting? Jesus didn't answer yes or no, but what he does say is this, go back and tell John what you've seen. The deaf here the blind see, the lame walk. You see, the power that Jesus was demonstrating and the words that He was speaking, they added up to this truth that Jesus truly was the One. He truly was the Messiah. He truly was the, 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 the answer to, to really all of our problems. And Mary and Martha, they understood that too. And so as they sit there and they're experiencing this, I, I mean, imagine watching someone you know and love suffering and hurting in an illness that you can see is killing them. And they sin for Jesus. Because they knew His power. They knew what He had done and they knew what He could do. And so they sin for Him. Jesus, come. This man who you love is ill. And they're trusting and depending. And what's interesting is we'll continue on. Jesus didn't really react the way they would have expected Him to. He didn't really do the things that, that they would have wanted Him to. But they do understand that He's that place. He's the one to who they should turn. And continuing in verse 4, it says this, But when Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when they heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. I thought about this a lot as I read these passages. Jesus loved them. So he stayed for two days. Does that make sense? Jesus loved them. So he stayed for two days. Hey, Jesus, this guy that you love, he's sick and he's dying. Come and help. And he loved him. And he stayed for two days. Have you ever been in trouble or been dealing with testing and trials and tribulation 
and you call out to God and He doesn't exactly act the way that you would expect Him to act. He doesn't act in the way that you tell Him He should act. He doesn't do the thing that you expect Him to do. You see, this messenger shows up and he walks up to Jesus and he says, hey, this guy is sick, you need to come. Probably fully expecting Jesus to gather his stuff up and run over and run to Bethany, probably about a day and a half or two-day journey, to see this guy healed. You see, they all had an expectation. That's why they turned to him. It's why that they, it's why that they reached out. It's that, it's that knowledge in his power and in his love for people that they knew that he would react. They knew. But what they didn't know was how he would react. I think they were probably surprised. And imagine Mary and Martha sitting at home. You know, we, this is speculation. It's not spelled out specifically in Scripture. We don't know exactly how it would have happened. But imagine that. There, there are people like you and me. What's it like to wait when you cry out to God, when you're in this place where you're hurting, where you're struggling, where you're suffering, where you're dealing with trials and tribulations, and you cry out to God, and immediately you don't get a response? What do you begin to think? What do you begin to deal with? You see, they're waiting. The messenger leaves and they know that it's, and he, he's, a, he's a long ways off. They know that it's going to be some time before they, before they get the, the, the question to him and they know that it's going to be some time before they hear an answer back. Imagine what they're dealing with in that time. You see, it's probably a lot like what you and I deal with when we're waiting. When we're dealing in the midst of the... We're just in the midst of the mess and we're waiting. Put yourself there. Imagine what it's like as, as they begin to realize, because in all likelihood, Lazarus was dead before Jesus even got the message. Imagine what it was like sitting there waiting and knowing that, that, that they waited too long. We should have sent for Jesus sooner. We should, have, we should have sent that messenger two days ago, two days before we sent him. We, we should have tried harder. We should have done something more. Imagine, as they looked out their window that day, and even though they knew Lazarus was already done, that he was dead, what it felt like when they saw the messenger coming back, but Jesus wasn't with them. Even if, even if they had known that it was too late, by all human accounts, it was too late. Nothing could be done. And the messenger's coming back. Oh, I, he's dead. I, I, I just need Jesus right now. And they see him coming. And Jesus isn't with them. So I really struggled. And I prayed. And I thought. And I, I listened for God. This man who you love is ill. And then John makes a point to say, so he loved them. He stayed two days longer. And I feel like what God showed me, maybe not revolutionary to you, it's certainly revolutionary to me. God loves us not by doing what we want, 
but by doing what we need. He does for us what we need Him to do. He's God. He gets to say what we need. We're the creation. We're called to trust Him in our need. You see, Jesus loved them. And and notice, this is a verb. He loved them actively. He did this in action. He showed them His love by staying for two more days. Allowing Lazarus to die. Because as we'll see, and as actually He's already said, I mean, He's already said it. Look at it in verse, I think it's verse uh, 4. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, what he understands is that, that more than just seeing him work, more than just seeing his power revealed over and over and over and over, we need to see his glory. We need to see him as God. We need to see him high and lifted up. We need to see that He is ruler and He is sovereign and He is worthy of worship and that it's our life that's to be molded to His, that's to be bowed before Him, that's to be at His feet, at His beck and call, at His command. Not the other way around. You see, it's His glory that was to be revealed, not the glory of man. It's for God's glory that this was to be done and Jesus understands that to love us, to, to truly love us, We need to be seeing that glory revealed. And He knows, He knows us so well that when things are going well and we're standing on our own two feet and we're walking tall and we've got everything under control and and everything is going our way, He knows that we're not seeing His glory. He knows that we're depending on ourselves and that we're standing on our own power and that we're trusting in ourselves and we're looking to, to the things of this world to fulfill us. And He knows that we're going to replace Him. And so He allows these things not so that we can hurt and so that we can be saddened and so that we can be just having trouble so that He can get some little kick out of it. He allows it so that His glory will be revealed so that we can see His glory. A match that's struck in a room like this is not going to burn very bright. But if we could turn that light off and we could turn this light off, that match would seem pretty stinking bright. See, Jesus loved them by revealing His glory to them. He loved them. So He stayed two more days And He allowed them to suffer so that they could see God's glory and that His glory might be revealed. And the story doesn't end there. And I'm glad it doesn't because there's so much. I mean, it's going to take us five weeks to get through this. There's so much to see. (laughs) So, we pick up in verse 7. And it says, but then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? And so Jesus, he, he stands up and he, he, he says, all right, now's the time to go. Now it's time. And, and his disciples, they're like, no, Jesus, don't go, don't go. You're going to be killed if you go there. And, and he, begins to, he, he, he begins to teach them and we're, we're actually going to deal with this passage next week, so we're going to skip past it this week. But he begins to talk to them more about Lazarus. And in verse, um, verse 12, he says, The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. I'm sorry, verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. And they, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. You see, the, the disciples, they want to stop Jesus. They, they, hey, Jesus, you do not need to go there. Well, you don't understand. Lazarus has fallen asleep. Well, hey, Jesus, if, if he's just fallen asleep and you've told us that this, that this, that this illness is not going to lead to death and he's going to wake up and he's going to recover and there's no reason for you to put yourself in this place where you're going to face even further opposition, where you may be killed. You're too important for that, Jesus. You need to stay here. This is the best place to be. How many of us could identify with that? How many of us look for that easy path? How many of us expect that easy path? Jesus was facing great opposition. He was, he was going to be stoned two times. Two times He says to them, I'm God, and they say, you know what, we're going to kill you. We want you dead. We don't like what you're saying. We're going to kill you. So He does leave. But now He's going back and His disciples are like, He's going to recover, Jesus. There's no reason to go back. He's going to recover. It'll be okay. No, you don't understand. Now he's dead. I really don't know what that moment was like for that split second. Wait a minute. You just told us this was not going to lead to death. We trusted you. What happened? I, I don't get it. And now you're telling us he's dead. But he didn't let him dwell on that long. He, he, he says something even more striking. He says something so striking that, that, that I, they probably couldn't help but think, what in the world are you saying? I'm glad that I wasn't there. You see, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad that I wasn't there. I thought you loved him. And you're glad? In fact, that, that, that word... That, that, that word that, we're, uh, that, that, that I've read as glad could also be translated as rejoice, and maybe that's what you're reading in some of your translations. Seems he was ecstatic. He was excited about this. He's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. It's interesting to me <laughs> because our world tells us that if suffering exists, God can't. If suffering exists and God's powerful enough to stop it but doesn't, He must be evil. If suffering exists, but God's not powerful enough to stop it even though He might want to, then He's not powerful enough to save us. Why worship Him? You see, it's interesting to me that, that here Jesus is standing and He says, He's dead. 
Our world would say, well, see, He doesn't care. He doesn't love Him. He didn't go and heal Him. He didn't go and do what He could do. And Jesus says, I'm glad. So that you can believe. You see, He knows. He knows that it's more important for us to deal with suffering and see His glory so that our faith might grow than to get what we want. Oh, it's easy to follow God when everything's going our way. It's easy to follow God. It's, it's, it's easy to trust in Jesus when the car runs and the house works and, and, and the bills are paid. It's easy to trust Jesus when I don't have to wonder how I'm going to pay for my next meal or how I'm going to provide for my family. It's easy to trust Jesus when it feels like I can do it all myself. It's easy to trust Jesus when I don't suffer. Some of the greatest times that I have experienced God's glory and seen Him and my faith has grown is in times of great suffering. I was talking about this again just this morning. One of the times, and in fact, one of the worst spiritual times in my life. I was cussing God. I was mad at God. I was angry because things were not going my way. I was doing everything I could, everything in my own power to convince everyone I knew that I did not know God, did not believe in a God, did not trust in God, wanted nothing to do with God. If you had met me in this time, you would have thought that I was one of the most lost people that you'd ever met. I was over the top trying to convince everyone that I didn't know God. You see, and then I'd go home at night and I'd get quiet. And God would remind me that He was there. And in the midst of that, as faithless and as angry and as selfish as I was, God never left me. And eventually, He brought me to the other side. You know, as I look back now, I believe. I believe enough that no matter what anyone says out there, I'm going to give my life to seeing a church planted that worships God first. He's going to have to do the work. But as He's called me to do it, I'm going to give my life to it. I believe Him enough and I understand His glory and have seen it enough through times like that that I want everyone I know and to come in contact with to see that same glory. And if it means that they have to deal with things like I dealt with, then that's what it means. Because I understand that Jesus loved them enough that He stayed there two days so that His glory would be revealed. And He was glad that He wasn't there so that their faith would be grown. Think about it. Mary and Martha already knew Jesus. They already trusted Jesus. That's why they sent for Him. The disciples, they already knew Jesus. They already trusted Jesus. That's why they were following Him. But they had experienced Jesus at many levels. Just not this one yet. You see, Jesus has just made claims to be God. 
was nearly killed for it. He's just about to show them that it's more than just words, but it's truth. And His glory will be revealed and they will be able to believe because they see it in action. Now think, every one of us, every day, deal with struggles. That's what happens in this world. We struggle because we sin. We struggle because other people sin. We struggle and face con or not, not conflict, but face trial because natural disaster, because the, the snow falls and people have wrecks. Because tornadoes happen and tear down houses. Because hurricanes come through and level cities. Because evil people do terrible things to children, they suffer. Because evil people don't care about anyone but themselves and they cause you suffering. And, and, and instead, of, instead of people submitting their life to God, they use people at their own whims. Husbands cheat on their wives. Wives cheat on their husbands. Children disobey their parents. And we deal with consequences every day because we sin. Is anybody above that? No. But do we have to be discouraged by it? Well, the world tells us that God can't exist if we suffer. The world tells us that if He really loved us, He would stop it all. The world tells us that, that if He was powerful enough, He would take it all away. I have a friend, a very close friend, that holds to this very position that, that he says, you know what, I'm a father. And I love my daughter so much, I'm going to protect her from all that I can. And when I see her struggling, I'm going to be there to support her, to encourage her, and to, to make it right if I can do it. And if God loved me, that's the way He would do me. And He holds this against God, and He's angry towards God, and He won't worship because of it. But you see, we learn in this story... Now let, me give you the, let, let me give you the end of the story. Let me spoil it for you. Lazarus is brought back to life. And God's glory is revealed. And his, worthy, his worthiness is shown. And many people come to believe. We don't have to be discouraged. Instead of being discouraged by the bad things that happen, look for how God might be revealing His glory to you so that you might believe in Him more. Look for how He might be working and, and what, what thing He might do in the midst of that that causes you to trust in Him more. Be encouraged because as believers, the Bible promises us, the Bible tells us that as we experience these testings and these trials, that, that they will not be put on us. Nothing will be put on us more than we can bear. And that Jesus will always give us a way out. It will always be provided. The Bible tells us that, that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. The Bible tells us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't suffer in vain, but so that we might see His glory and trust in Him. 
The Bible tells us this so that we can know and find courage and strength in the midst of suffering and trial and tribulation. The Bible tells us this because it knows it's God's Word and, 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 and He knows. He knows that we need to deal with this so we'll look for Him. So that we'll trust in Him. Be encouraged as you suffer and as you deal with trial and tribulation. Because as His child, as His child, He's not glad that you're suffering. He's glad that you'll be able to see His glory. And He's glad that you'll see that you can trust in Him more. He's not excited and giggling that you're suffering. We'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. He's glad that you'll be brought to a place where you understand you need Him. And you must trust in Him. And that He is your provision. And that He is your protection. That He is your way. That He is the one who brings life into the midst of death. That He is the one with the power. That He is the one that should be worshipped as worthy of our everything. Every head bowed, and every eye closed. I want you to think about your life and where you're at. And I want you to think about the circumstances of the, the things that you are dealing with right now. The ways that, the ways that, that you're struggling, the, the things that you're dealing with, the, 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 the problems that you face. And I want you to think about how God might be revealing His glory to you. 